by Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move, down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the gun. who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. This is the Say the Damn Score podcast with your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome, everybody, to the Say the Damn Score podcast. We are here with our second consecutive Big Ten announcer. And right now, I am very fortunate to be joined by the voice of the Ohio State Buckeyes football and basketball teams, Mr. Paul Keels. And Paul, thanks for joining me here. My pleasure, Logan. Glad to do it. So one of the things that I found very interesting that I want to start off with doing a little bit of research on your career and uh, where you've been is you have been part of both sides of maybe the most intense rivalry in all of college sports. You've been the play-by-play announcer for Michigan and Ohio State. How did you get Ohio State to hire you after you'd been the Michigan guy? Well, Logan, let's let's qualify some of that first off at the time of the 1980s when i was working in detroit i worked for one of five radio stations that broadcast michigan football and one of three that did basketball so at that time there was not a one single uh broadcast outlet or a one single announcer for the university of michigan um and you know for reference sake i am a native ohio and grew up in cincinnati but at the time uh, that i moved to detroit in 1980, I started at WJR Radio and for one season did the Detroit Pistons. And that station was going to be giving up the Pistons contract uh, right across the street at WWJ, which was uh, an all-news radio station. They had an opening to do Michigan football and basketball. And as I interviewed for that position, uh, the general manager talked to me about how they tried to approach it in a different manner from the other stations that did the games. And basically, the approach was to be kind of a neutral, low-key, almost like a network broadcast. And his comment to me, paraphrasing, was it really would help if you're not a Michigan fan and not a Michigan homer. And I told him, I said, well, I grew up in Ohio. My mother's an Ohio State graduate. I grew up following the Buckeyes, but respecting the rivalry with Michigan. And he said, great, that's the great attitude. Keep it that way. So for six years, I worked at WWJ doing uh, University of Michigan football and basketball. But again, it was not the single broadcast outlet. There were four other companies who did the same thing. And the reason being is the then athletic director, Don Canham, uh, wanted all of those groups to pay rights fees. <laughs> uh, do you do you ever get a hard time just jokingly from any of your coworkers or from any of the administration at Ohio State about that still? No, the only time that I got some playful jabbing about it was when I first took the job uh, with the, the radio station in Columbus uh, that I work for now that has the Ohio State contract. Uh, the company that I had left from Cincinnati to come to Columbus also owned a station here in Columbus, but it was a station who did not have the broadcast rights. They were aware of my background, and, and for a few weeks, maybe a month or so, they tried to use it for some good playful ammunition. But no, not really. A lot of people, much like you, they ask the question, how did that happen? And then when you explain that kind of the differences in the situation, then that seems to kind of answer it pretty quickly. So just following up on that, on a different topic, but you mentioned that you like to have a low-key approach, or at least that's what they were looking for you from you at that time. 
Is that still what you use? Do you still kind of keep the low-key neutral approach, even though you're now broadcasting for Ohio State? Well, I would say less neutral, but still trying to emphasize the basics, down and distance, location of the ball, time and score. You can never give the time and the score too much, which ties into the title of your podcast. Um, But there's no question that, yes, I am an Ohio State fan. I want to see Ohio State do well. Uh, You're working with a former Ohio State player who shows the great enthusiasm and excitement that you would expect an analyst to show, and that's what Jim Lachey does. Uh, That kind of takes care of that part of it. Uh, but also the approach, too, is you've got to be able to, to give proper due to the opponent when they make great plays and, and when they play well and when they look good. So in general, yes, kind of the same approach. I wouldn't call it neutral, uh, but trying not to get so excited and so caught up in it that you don't do justice to describing what's going on. Was there ever a point at your career where I'd like to use the parallel of you know, somebody trying to change somebody's jump shot after they've shot the same way for forever. Did anybody ever get to tr- try to get you to change your style to something uh, maybe with a little bit more pizzazz and flair that you'd had to fight along the way? Not at all. Um, there were some influences at times, attempted influences, I should say, from a sales standpoint uh, in trying to interject some sales items, but I was fortunate to work for, and this was during the time when I was doing games for the University of Cincinnati, which was between my stints doing games for Ohio State and Michigan. Uh, and it, But it was somebody coming at it from a sales approach, and, and the program, programming people at that radio station were pretty quick to shoot that down. But no, I've never really had anything from a programming standpoint to say that. Uh, I've been very fortunate uh, that the people that I've worked for and that I've answered to uh, as a game announcer, uh, have done a very good job of uh, allowing me to mold into whatever my style is. Uh, and anything that's been in the way of constructive criticism has not been in the point of trying to change how I announce the games, if that makes sense to you. It sure does. That was a. Usually we start in a little bit of a different way, but just reading some of that research, I wanted to go there first before we get into kind of the path that you followed to where you were. But now we're going to get there. So what was your very first uh, attempt to scratch the itch of broadcasting? When did you start to develop that passion? Well, as a kid growing up in Cincinnati and and in the the mid-1960s was when I started to pay attention to the Cincinnati Reds. Um, who at that time were playing at Crosley Field. And and really about 1967-68 was when some of the formative pieces of what we all came to know as the Big Red Machine were starting to take place. Um, So before I had ever seen a game in person or I'd ever seen a game on TV, spent a lot of nights as a kid listening to to the radio to Jim McIntyre and Joe Nuxall broadcasting the Reds games from Crosley Field, from Forbes Field in Pittsburgh, from Connie Mack Stadium, in Philadelphia, uh, places like that, and learning the sport of baseball, but visualizing how the sport was played and and trying to picture the players and the people that were involved in it. And so that really kind of caught my attention. It then rolled over into, uh, at that time, we had a a professional basketball team in Cincinnati, the Royals, who are now in Sacramento. And uh, there was an announcer there by the name of Don Valentino who broadcast the Royals and, and really captured my imagination with listening to the Royals going up and down the court. The same thing with football. As the Bengals came into existence in 1968, Phil Samp was their first announcer uh, to the University of Cincinnati. At that time, Xavier was playing football. And, of course, the influence of Ohio State. 
but so it was in the, the, the mid to late 1960s, rolling into the 1970s, when, when the broadcasting bug for sports really hit. So when did you get your first real on-the-air experience, and when did you get your first break to become a professional in the industry? My first real break came while I was still in college at Xavier University, and we had a student-run radio station with a faculty moderator at Xavier. And while we were doing a lot of different things that were for class credit and stuff like that, uh, I got involved and was fortunate enough to get involved in doing high school football broadcasts in Cincinnati, which is a great high school football city. Uh, at that time, Xavier's basketball games were not broadcast by a commercial station. So uh, a group of us of students had the opportunity to do some of those games, as well as doing newscasts, doing talk show hosts, doing music shifts, things like that. Um, and then in 1979, I became aware of an opening in the news department at WLW Radio in Cincinnati, a big 50,000-watt signal, and really was kind of the powerful all-service station in that city, uh, carried the Reds, carried the Bengals. Uh, they had an opening for an evening news person, and uh, through a couple of different connections, I got an interview with the news director, uh, very nervously went in, uh, put together an audition tape. They asked me if I could start the next night uh, working a three-to-midnight shift. I, I dropped all of my classes and started the next night and, and worked about a year and a year and a half as a news reporter in Cincinnati and uh, occasionally got to fill in doing sports, but that was kind of my first real break as a, a paid professional broadcaster. So starting off in news, how did you eventually get into sports where you were covering, I believe your your first big-time sports job was the Detroit Pistons? Yes. Well, working as a newscaster was something that really consumed most of my time, but I, I was fortunate in the fact that the people who hired me at WLW were aware that I was interested in sports because of what I had done at our college radio station. There was an occasion to fill in doing some of the regular sports updates. Uh, the last few months I worked at WLW, they actually uh, allowed me to host a uh, sports talk show that came on the air after the Reds games on uh, Monday through Friday nights. And it was through that that uh, the sports director at WJR in Detroit had heard me and uh, called me and asked if I would be interested in uh, interviewing for a job at WJR in Detroit and uh, uh, agreed to do the interview, was offered the job and found myself uh, moving to, I think at that time, it was the fourth or fifth largest media market in the country. So there's a lot of people around the country who get their start uh, doing some uh, backup or high school play-by-play while also doing a news job, but a lot of people maybe don't want to do it. How much did doing news first help you when it came to doing sports? Well, it, it, it helped me in the willingness to do it, Logan. It helped me get in the door. And we were very fortunate, Xavier, at that time. We had a faculty moderator for our radio station who really tried to influence all of us who were students that uh, you may have an idea of what end of the broadcasting business you want to get into, but you need to be prepared to go in in another, uh, in another job in another level uh, so that you can first get your foot in the door and then try and pursue a specific interest. So uh, at that time, knowing that with most AM radio stations that, that had news and had sports, there were more newscasting jobs and news reporting jobs than there were sportscasters jobs. So, uh, and again, the, the news department that I went to work for at WLW was a very highly regarded one with some, some professionals who were, were really pretty big in the business. 
So I was able to get involved in that and learn from them. And it helped from the standpoint of, of learning things like writing, uh, learning how to uh, report from the field, how to you know use actualities in a newscast. And uh, it helped when it came to that uh, as far as doing sportscasts. So it looks to me like your next move after, was it just one year with the Pistons? Yes, and what happened there, Logan, was when I was hired by WJR to be a sports anchor and a sports reporter, once I got there, uh, and they had asked if I had had any audition tapes doing football and basketball, and I had uh, provided them with some of the work that I'd done at the college station. Um, At that point, they had the Detroit Pistons broadcast, and that position on radio came open. And unbeknownst to me, all of a sudden, uh, they said, well, hey, uh, as well as all of your other duties, we're going to make you the play-by-play announcer for the Detroit Pistons. So at age 23, I was doing games in the NBA. And, and, uh, you know, the Pistons were, they were very much a struggling basketball team at that time. Uh, And they they struggled so much that when the games were televised locally, we did not do them on radio. But it was still a great, great opportunity. So with... With your one year there, then eventually we talked a little bit about the Michigan uh, football and basketball role that you had where you were one of several different rights holders. How did you how did you kind of um, rate yourselves? Did they have traditional rating systems where you were comparing yourself against those other people uh, with the programming? And was there a lot of competition between you or was it kind of a friendly rivalry? It was friendly competition. Uh, you know, we all kind of got to know one another. Uh, oftentimes we're in the same hotel, sometimes on the same flights, uh, especially during the basketball season with a longer season and more days. So it was, it was a very friendly competition. But but I was very fortunate. Uh, the, the radio station that I did the University of Michigan games for, uh, WWJ, which was a CBS affiliate, Um I was very fortunate. I had a news director and a general manager who were really pretty good about, they stayed out of your way unless they needed to get in your way. Um, and I was, again, I was 23, 24 years old when I took that job. And I was working with guys that were, uh, you know, longtime veteran newscasters that a, that a 24 hour fast moving all news format and guys that, you know, I was intimidated in a good way and overwhelmed by, I was kind of the token soprano on the on air staff. They had guys, that had the big, deep, booming voices that made the floors rattle. Um, And so I was able to get a lot of good, constructive input from some of those people. But, you know, fortunately, things went well enough for us. And and I was familiar with how things had been done on that station in the past as well. Uh, So I kind of got in line with understanding how they wanted to approach it. And it was just, and again, because it was an all-new station, even though it was the sports end of their programming, they, they still wanted it to fit that factual, hard-driving, all-news format and that all-news image. So it was basically, you know, putting the emphasis on uh, down the distance, time and score, who has the ball, things like that. It was, uh, again, one one of the few pieces of input was listen to what you hear on some of the network sportscasts, you know, whether it's a World Series, Monday Night Football, things like that. Uh, you know, and try and emulate, not not in, intimidate, or, or, or uh, not intimidate, that's not the right word, not imitate, but try to emulate and be somewhat like what that programming was like. So after that, it looks like you had a short stop in Washington, D.C. before picking up the play-by-play in your hometown at the University of Cincinnati. Before we get into a couple uh, 
kind of side offshoots that I want to get into about that. Just how did that opportunity come about? Well, what happened after six years of doing the University of Michigan, uh, WWJ went through an ownership change. And when they went through the ownership change, uh, a large majority of us were let go. And I was unfortunately one of those people who was let go. Um, so I found myself for about three months uh, looking for work, returned home to Cincinnati, my hometown, worked briefly at another station in Cincinnati, WCKY, as a, as a newscaster. And then through a contact I had made previously in Detroit, uh, folks from United Press International Radio in Washington, D.C., had gotten a hold of me. They had an opening in their sports department. And uh, so I left Cincinnati to go to United Press International to be a sports anchor there and to cover some of the national events that they had. It was um, an interesting experience living in D.C. I was there for a little bit less than a year uh, to work again with a very, very talented group of people. Uh, the UPI network was struggling at that point. It was uh, basically operating on band-aids, but for uh, you know, having the chance to cover a Super Bowl and cover a Final Four and work again with some very talented people at the network level. It, w- it was a great opportunity. Uh, and living in D.C. for a brief period of time was a lot of fun. You've mentioned a couple different times already as we go through your path and how you got to where you were that the importance of making contacts and building relationships and how important that is in uh, moving up the food chain and finding opportunities what tips would you give to anyone who is also in the process of of trying to build those relationships and find those those connections that will help themselves? Well, the most important thing to remember, Logan, is it's a people business. It's the people that you're communicating with as far as your audience. Uh, it's the people you're talking about, whether it's just a sportscaster or a newscaster, and it's the people you work with. And one of the things that I learned very early on, and I'm sure a lot of others have, is the contacts you make are the ones that very possibly down the road can pay off for you. Um, the position I have now uh, is because of someone that I worked with when I very first got started in my first two years in the broadcasting business. The opportunity to go to Washington, D.C. was because of a contact that I had made previously with someone that I'd worked in Detroit. It, it's incredibly important. Uh, you don't know who you're working with at the present time who might all of a sudden down the road be in a position of influence to have to make a decision or how someone you've worked with can pass your name on as a recommendation if they're asked about an opening. So often that's how things happen where somebody in a decision-making position has to fill a spot and they ask people they know, who do you know? Who would be a good person for this? Um, And so just being mindful of everybody you meet uh, everybody you work with, everybody you come in contact with, uh, you know, somebody told me a long time ago, it's not hard being nice to people. It really, really isn't. And oftentimes you'll find that in one way or another, that very possibly can pay off for you. So calling games for the University of Cincinnati, the your hometown team, how special was that ending up back at your hometown covering the team that you had probably watched growing up and being around family and friends? It was very exciting because it allowed me the opportunity, first off, to move back home. Um, You know, I had been away from Cincinnati for the seven years I worked in Detroit, uh, was there for about six to eight months, then was gone to Washington, D.C. for a little less than a year and realized 
that I really did want to get back to Cincinnati. Uh, my immediate family was all there at the time. Uh, a lot of longtime, very valuable friends. The familiarity with the city that I'd grown up in, I, it, it really was something I wanted to do. Uh, so when the opportunity came, and it was at a station that I worked at prior to going to Washington, D.C., when the University of Cincinnati position opened up, it was a thrill to be able to be interviewed uh, knowing it's a station that I'd already been at, knowing the people that were there. Uh, and it was an exciting time at the University of Cincinnati. They were opening for the 1989-90 season. They were opening a brand-new basketball arena on campus. They were in the process of rebuilding their football stadium. They had two brand-new head coaches in football and basketball that uh, proved to be up-and-comers. So it was kind of an exciting time for two two sports that had really been struggling. So there were a lot of reasons that it was very exciting. While you were there, you also had the opportunity to do one season with the Cincinnati Bengals before kind of having the rug pulled out underneath of you when you lost the rights. How exciting was that opportunity, and then how frustrating was it when that went away? Well, and there was also another different twist along with that. When I began doing the games for the University of Cincinnati, I did them for three years, the third year being their final four season in 1992. And the station I was at, WCKY, they gave up the broadcast rights uh, for the University of Cincinnati. Another station got the, the contract, but there was not an opportunity for me to move to that station. The general manager of the new station wanted to do the games himself. So I found myself for two years having to once again go back to being a newscaster. And I worked for a radio station in Dayton, WHIO Radio in Dayton, for three years as a news anchor. Uh, then WLW in Cincinnati reacquired the University of Cincinnati contract. I was able to go back and continue again, uh, resume again, I should say, doing the Bearcats camps. Uh, and at that time, WLW had University of Cincinnati, they had Xavier, they had the Bengals, and they had the Reds. Well, the Bengals position opened up for the 1996 season. And so I was able to interview for that. was fortunate that the Bengals chose me to be, at that time, I was going to be just the third play-by-play announcer in team history um, and was going to continue to do basketball for the University of Cincinnati. So that was something that was really exciting, that there was a chance to, again, broadcast games for one of the professional teams that you had grown up in. Um, and then when that, after the 1996 season ended, and when WLW lost the broadcast rights in, in what was really kind of a <clears throat> very controversial and a very disappointing situation that occurred, the folks at WLW were very good to me. Uh, they immediately uh, reinstalled me to doing football for the University of Cincinnati uh, as a thank you for something that was a very disappointing thing for everybody. They uh, gave me an unscheduled raise. Uh, they also allowed for some other possible job opportunities, one of which came allowing me to interview for the Tampa Bay Devil Rays uh, baseball team when they were an expansion franchise not yet playing. So it, it was a situation that was very disappointing. It was very unfortunate, uh, but I was also uh, very thankful with how I was treated by the radio station I worked for, just kind of how they made up for the loss of that to me. So you've obviously had a lot of success in this point uh, up throughout your career, but you've also gone through quite a few disappointments. How have you? How do you handle that disappointment and keep on moving forward the way that you do? 
Well, I think maybe the first thing was in, I guess it would have been 1987 when I found myself out of work. And so many people I'd known had been through that, uh, knowing through a lot of people who had gone through it, who were very supportive and very encouraging. The one thing that, that I learned in, again, trying to pursue a job was just because you had been let go, and especially when the situation involved an ownership change, it wasn't the black mark against you that it felt like. And so that kind of kept me going and just trying to be confident in your own self, uh, you know, trying not to set any limits, understanding it probably would involve relocating, uh, relocating maybe to someplace you'd never even thought about, or maybe wouldn't even think about going to, or wouldn't want to go to, but, uh, but just trying to stay positive and understand that, you know, Hey, this is why it happened. It wasn't because you don't have the ability to do it. Now it's just a matter of working hard to try and make the right connection with the right people. So after that was when you got the opportunity to become the Ohio state broadcaster where you still are. Oh, you mentioned earlier that that was through a contact. How did that contact come to fruition and give us the story of how you got to where to, uh, I'm assuming is going to be your job for a long time. Well, Logan, what helped is the fact that working at WLW in Cincinnati and again, being a 50,000 watt station is very easily heard in Columbus, which is just two hours away. So the gentleman who was the executive director of the Ohio state radio network at that time, his name was Ed Douglas. And I had worked with Ed and was aware of Ed the first two years that I worked in broadcasting. He was a newscaster at a sister station for WLW when I had worked there previously in the late 1970s. And Ed contacted me and said there was a possibility that the Ohio State job was going to come open. Uh, Would I be interested in discussing with him? Uh, And at that time, I had verbally agreed to a new contract with WLW. And I said, well, certainly I would love to talk to you about it. And so we had a discussion, um, met with the general manager, with the program director, and uh, the executive producer of the network and they within 48 hours I believe it was Logan they made me a job offer and part of what was a little troubling to me is that I had verbally agreed to a new contract at WLW but uh, the programming people at that radio station had dragged their feet on giving me the actual document to sign Um, so that kind of left the window open Um, it was a summer in which I really had to uh, It was really difficult in many ways trying to make that decision, Uh, leave your hometown, only going two hours away, but to go to a great sports brand like Ohio State. Uh, Once I got to the point where I realized neither decision was a bad decision, it made it a lot easier for me to make the choice. And and I did it, Uh, decided to take the job. I had to uh, give my notice, but I had to, to, for two weeks, I had to be silent about where it was that I was going because it involved a personnel change that was occurring at our radio station in Columbus. So, um, it, but it, it certainly has been to this date and, you know, well over 30 years of broadcasting, the best professional move that I've ever made. Did that burn any bridges back at your old station or did they understand? Uh, it didn't burn any bridges. There, there was a, a little bit of tension, especially with the general manager at WLW, who uh, was a, a gentleman that, that I had and still do great, great respect for uh, by the name of David Martin, uh, who actually on a personal level was very good friends with my parents. 
Uh, he was a little bothered by the fact that he thought we had come to an understanding, and I uh, understood him being bothered, but I said, yes, we did, but uh, uh, the contract was not put in front of me by the programming people to sign before I went on this interview. So it didn't burn any bridges. As a matter of fact, I ended up still doing a little bit of freelance work for that station in Cincinnati for the first few years that I was in Columbus. So it, it didn't burn any bridges. No, there were some tense moments, but I think once everybody, what was really tough when it, for two weeks, I couldn't tell them where I was going. And all I could do is say, it's uh, not to, I'm not going to work for any of the competitors of uh, any of our, the ownership groups in Cincinnati and that it is out of the market. So once I was able to make them aware of where it was, I was going, everybody was very, very much understanding. And, and one of the other big reasons that helped me make the decision was for WBNS Radio and, and Radio Ohio, the company here in Columbus, who is the rights holder. It was the rights holder at that time. IMG is now uh, involved as a rights holder as well. Uh, but Ohio State was their main sports property. They That was their number one priority. At WLW at that time, the University of Cincinnati was third on a four-team chain. So it, it really helped knowing that I was going to a radio station and a company that was making Ohio State their prime broadcast property. You know, having to keep news like that a secret, how hard was that? And was there maybe a family member or somebody who you trust very closely that you just had to let that go to a little bit early on the, because you have the trust that they obviously would not spread that? Um, I, my parents were aware of it. Uh, some of my siblings were aware of it. And, and a very small group of very close friends were aware of it. Other than that, I was very careful about that. I, I had been burned by that when I worked in Detroit, when I had changed radio stations. So um, it, it was one of those things. It was difficult. And a lot of it was difficult, Logan, just because it was exciting. And I had to kind of contain the excitement. Uh, but it was a necessary thing, again, because there, there was a, a personal change that was involved in Columbus with the, the, the radio company here. So you know, things needed to occur on the Columbus end before it could be made public. Since then, you've got to cover some very, very good football and basketball over a lot of different years. Uh, the one that stands out to me, of course, the national title run in 2002 and the most recent one just a couple years back. Uh, but you actually wrote a book about the 2002 national title run. What were some of the stories that you that were especially memorable from that season? A lot of it involved just how that team really surprised people. At the beginning of the year, I believe they were ranked 12th or 13th in the preseason poll. Um, they had a freshman tailback by the name of Maurice Claret, who in his first couple of games just took the world by the tail and shook it. Um, you had a first-year starting quarterback a team that really people thought in 2003 might be a team that would contend for a national championship. Um, but also a team that once they got into the meat of the big 10 schedule, you know, they had a lot of close calls games that they just barely hung on, uh, you know, a, a scare against the university of Cincinnati at Paul Brown stadium, a scare against Purdue and Illinois, uh, a tight game against Michigan. And then of course the tight one against Miami, so that was a lot of the fodder of what it was about for the first time ever in 2002. Ohio State played an overtime game. Uh, they were the last Big Ten team to play an overtime game. Uh, dealt with, you know, their star tailback being injured 
in crucial games, but still finding ways to win. Um, winning ugly in some ways. Uh, case in point being a game they won at Purdue. <clears throat> so it, it was things like that, some of the things that involved what our broadcast group saw traveling around. Uh, I know there was a particular Saturday after Ohio State beat Purdue, and we were waiting in West Lafayette before returning home. Um, Oklahoma lost, I believe it was to Texas Tech. And what that did is it meant that Ohio State and Miami were the only two remaining undefeated Division One teams. So it kind of cleared the path. So that was also part of uh, what I wrote about, what, I, what it was like the night uh, after they had beaten Miami and won the national championship, just the, the shock that people had, the, uh, the deluge of uh, text messages and cell phone messages that I got from people after the game, uh, how uh, my two on-air partners and myself were, were given the opportunity to get championship rings. Uh, wrote about that a little bit. So it was uh, a lot of those things that went into that book. Did you get a championship ring, and where do you keep it? If you did, yes, I did, and I have I have a number of them now. Uh, I have two from football, from the two national championships, and then I have five from basketball uh, for the two Final Fours under Thad Mata, as well as the other Big Ten championships, uh, either regular season or tournament championships. Uh, so it's a very nice collection to have, and and I have them safely locked in a fireproof lockbox in my house. So covering Ohio State, you know, they certainly has not been without its share of controversy. And I guess I'm not necessarily interested in your thoughts or opinions on the controversy with Coach Tressel and with the NCAA violations and stuff. But just when something like that is brought before you as the voice of a team, how do you address that fairly while still being, you know, pro Ohio State and not wanting to make anybody look bad, so to speak. Well, it, a lot of it comes down to the things and you asked about the news background and how that ties into everything. <clears throat> You're dealing with facts and you present the facts and you have to be careful that you don't allow anything other than the facts to become involved in that. And prior to the situation with Jim Trestle, uh, there was a very unfortunate situation that occurred with basketball when Jim O'Brien was let go because of some NCAA recruiting violations. Uh, it led to the Final Four in 1999 being vacated. So, you know, we kind of went through that drill first. Uh, and then with the situation with Jim Trestle, and that occurred, um, and, and if you remember, Logan, that occurred right when Ohio State was getting ready to play in the NCAA tournament, and they were the overall number one seed in the NCAA tournament that year. So it was a big distraction to the basketball team. But... Um, you basically just kind of have to rely on what's known, what's factual, not innuendo, not uh, rumor, not things that can't be substantiated. And, and with the whole thing that, that occurred with Jim Trestle, uh, it started really with the knowledge of what had happened before the team had played in the Sugar Bowl a year before. And they were allowed to continue to play in the Sugar Bowl. Uh, there were five players that were the key figures in the uh, – what is referred to around here as tattoo gate. And those players were allowed to play in the, in the sugar bowl, a game in which Ohio state beat Arkansas that was later vacated. Uh, those players were going to be suspended for five games. Jim Tressel was going to be suspended for five games. And then as the university unearthed more information about what had gone on in, in the entire situation, uh, really bringing to light that there had been more communication from Coach Tressel uh, with other people involved than had previously been known, or at least had previously been verified, 
then the university got to the point where there needed to be a separation. Um, so you, you just basically deal with what is factual. And, you know, we, the, the day when, you know, coach Trestle resigned or fired or however you want to look at it, it was on Memorial day of 2011. And uh, I was called in to do a talk show. It was on the air for five hours talking about it. And it's one of those that you have to, you know, put personal feelings or personal relationship aside if there is a, a good one. And it's basically dealing with the facts and also basically dealing with how the university, they've got to look out for their athletic program's best interest. And it was difficult because here was a guy that brought Ohio State a national championship and Big Ten championships and dominance over Michigan, who had done a lot of great things in the community, had done a lot of great things with the young men that he had coached. Um, but obviously it was a situation where rules were broken and the university had to take a tough step. One of the things you've been very fortunate uh, over the years covering the teams that you have is th- there's been certainly some exceptions maybe at Cincinnati and with the Pistons, but you've covered some really good teams that haven't had a whole lot of losing to deal with. I guess, do you ever just look in the mirror when you get up and say, man, am I lucky that I get to go and cover this team? Absolutely. But I will say to you, Logan, when I was doing games at the University of Cincinnati and their football program was really in a bad place in the late 1980s and the early 1990s, but it was still great doing it. Um, you know, the basketball team had had some success, but football struggled. Uh, I, I distinctly remember one game where they played at Penn State and lost 81 to nothing. But it's still about the game and it's still about the players and it's still about the coaches. And it, and it's a great opportunity to have the chance to, to do those games. You know, there's uh, the great thing about the university of Cincinnati, uh, both with football and basketball. And, and even prior to the, the success that they had under Bob Huggins in basketball. And, and this is the case I'm sure with any college team or even pro team for that matter, there's a loyal fan base. And at that time, even into the mid 1990s, there still weren't as many games on TV, especially for teams that weren't playing well. So that that loyal fan base, if they weren't at a game, they had to follow it on radio. So uh, is it easier and more enjoyable when a team is having success? Certainly, uh, you know, during the time at Ohio state, you know, after 19 seasons, I've had it, have been two football seasons that were uh, not winning seasons. Uh, there've been some difficult basketball seasons during those 19 years, but there've been some great seasons too. So uh, when a team is doing well, it certainly makes it more enjoyable. But when a team is struggling, you still look at it as though you still have the opportunity to do something you've always wanted to do and that is important to the fans of that team. You are providing them with what they want to know about their team, even if the team's struggling. So when you were at Cincinnati, was that while Bob Huggins was there? Yes, absolutely. So he is one of my just favorite personalities to watch on the sideline and kind of read about and hear stories about. Give us a Bob Huggins story from your time at Cincinnati. Well, and and I will start by saying that if all you know about Bob is what you see on the sidelines during a game, it is the worst impression that you could get of him. Bob is is down to earth and as easygoing and as carefree as anybody you will ever come across. And it's sometimes you have to be very careful as a play-by-play announcer and the coaches you deal with in becoming friends with them. 
uh, and friends away from the games and things like that. But Bob was someone I was able to do that with and am still uh, great friends with Bob. He, uh, you know, maybe the most moving thing Bob did was he showed up in 2002 at my father's funeral. Um, but but uh, to have one story is really difficult. There, there's probably a few that I could tell you that, that aren't for publication that mostly uh, mostly would paint me in a bad way. But uh, one I will tell you is that uh, one year when Cincinnati was playing at Tulane, when they were in the same conference together, I believe it was at the time it was the Conference USA, and Perry Clark was the head coach at Tulane. Um, and Bob and Perry were very close, very good acquaintances, good coaching buddies. And there was a particular official who worked at conference pretty regularly. And while Bob was scouting Tulane on film, he noticed that this particular official was always working games at Tulane in New Orleans. And so he had asked Perry Clark about this. And Perry Clark provided Bob with some information that, let's just say, uh, led to this official's desire to want to always be in New Orleans that he wouldn't want everybody to know. And so the first call that this official made that went against Cincinnati, Bob called him over and said, hey, if you're going to continue to put it to us with your bad calls, I'm going to go to the commissioner of officials and make him aware of what you've got going on here in New Orleans. Nothing illegal, but um, and immediately the calls seemed to be a little more uh, even in the game. <laughs> I want to follow up on that where – you know, you talked about being friends with the coaches because obviously you want to have a good relationship, a good rapport to have access and get some of the inside information that you need to be an expert on the team that you're covering and know more than the the listeners. But at the same time, becoming friends can be difficult if something bad were to happen, if they were to let go, staying objective. How have you balanced that? Obviously, you became friends with the coaches. Was there ever a point where you thought, maybe this isn't a good idea and you did it anyway? How did you make those decisions? Well, a lot of it, Logan, is kind of like how you make friends in your own social life. And it involves how you connect with that person regardless of the fact of whether they're the head coach that you're dealing with. Um, I was very fortunate with Bob Huggins that we were able to, uh, because of both of us starting together at Cincinnati in our respective roles and watching that program in three years go from a, from a team that had lost 20 games to go into a final four. Um, so it was a great thing to be a part of. Um, other coaches, you maybe just for a personal reason, not necessarily bad, but your personalities just don't click. Uh, sometimes it might be a particular coach who makes you doing your job difficult. Um, and so you just kind of have to, you know, do your job with that person and then be done. And uh, you hope that there's a, a, a modicum of respect that's still involved in it. So it just, it, a lot of it really just depends on the personality. But in most cases, whether it's a coach that you become friends with, that you're not friends with, that there's distance with, there's closeness with. There's a few things that have to be involved in it. First off, you have to be respectful of their time. Even if it's a situation where they're contractually obligated to do pregame interviews and call-in shows and things like that, you have to be respectful of their time. You also have to be very, very respectful of any off-the-record type of information that you become aware of, whether they willingly make you aware of it or you become aware of it because of your capacity. 
And when those situations occur, you need to have a discussion with them. Say, hey, is this something that doesn't need to be talked about publicly, or is it something that at some point in time will? Uh, but just and, and when those things develop, that can help you uh, either become good personal friends or good respectful acquaintances. So a lot of it basically just comes down to the individual, just like it does in your personal life. There's some people you meet that you become really good friends with. There's other people you meet that you're just kind of acquaintances with and other people that you know you don't necessarily care to spend time with. One of the things that I try to do on every episode of this podcast is ask you for some of your personal broadcast horror stories where maybe something went horribly wrong with the equipment, where maybe you had a horrible... Uh, broadcast location, or just something really strange happened in the course of trying to cover a game and that maybe mortified you at the time, but you can look back at now and chuckle at? Oh, my goodness. Um, One that comes to mind immediately was doing a game for the University of Cincinnati, and they were playing at the University of Kentucky in football. And the game was coming down to a last second or close to last second field goal attempt by Kentucky. And as the Kentucky kicker was preparing to kick the field goal, it started low and it looked like it was headed right to the hands of a defensive lineman. And I jumped the gun and said it was blocked, but the ball went right through the guy's hands, went all the way downfield and ended up being a game winning field goal. So that was kind of embarrassing. I had to kind of recorrect it as everything was happening. And, uh, Uh, you know, playfully, more of my really good friends gave me grief about it rather than catching any flack. And this was well before social media. Um, Not too terribly long ago, maybe in the last 10 years, I had a basketball game where the opposing team for the entire second half, I referred to them by the wrong nickname. I think they were Terriers and I may have called them Bulldogs. And I, I got a horribly nasty email from an alum of that school to which I responded and tried to be as apologetic as I could. And you know, just kind of made you try and pay more attention to details, you know, not get so caught up that in one thing or another that you lose sight of some of the small things. So those those are probably a couple of them that come to mind. When you make a mistake like calling someone the wrong name or, you know, with your blocked field goal situation, what do you do on the air when you are made aware of them? Do you just immediately apologize? Do you ignore it? How do you handle a mistake? Well, in a lot of cases, and I've been very fortunate, especially with the, the Ohio State position, uh, our executive producer is with us in our booth for football, and he's also our engineer for basketball. And he is pretty good about giving me little nonverbal hints if all of a sudden I've said a wrong name or I've done something. Or sometimes it, it might involve a commercial break. Um, and, you know, like most people, I would imagine, I'm one of those people that if I've made a mistake, I certainly want to know so that I can correct it or I can apologize for it and not make the same mistake. Uh, oftentimes you kind of, you'll get a feeling that maybe you said something that wasn't quite right, whether it was a, you know, a yard line or a score or a, a name or something like that. And, and it'll kind of scratch at you in the back of your head and you may get to a break and you say it, or, you know, you immediately try to readdress it without maybe pointing it out. But I think most people who do this, and, and hopefully in, in all industries, you're your toughest critic. Uh, you know, you want to get better, and you're not immune to mistakes. Anybody who thinks they don't make mistakes, I don't know if they're being quite honest with themselves. We all make mistakes, um, but you just want to uh, try and, in your preparation, 
in your routine, uh, in your focus to not let things distract you. Uh, you just want to be as focused as you can be. And, and if you do make a mistake, and we all make them, uh, you don't want to keep making the same mistake. You mentioned we all want to try to get better. What do you do, even at your stage of your career, to continually improve? One of the things that we do, especially during football season, we have a weekly football meeting. It involves myself, my analyst, our sideline person, and our executive producer. And we, and, and it's a meeting that might take 20 minutes to a half hour, but we will kind of go over, is there any concerns that came out of the previous game? Anything that anybody needed to talk about, we'll talk about And We have an hour and a half pregame show, so we kind of have to outlay some, you know, lay out some storylines and things like that. And then we will sit and we will listen to parts of the previous game and listen for how often were we giving the score? How often were we giving the down and distance? If there was a crucial situation, how well did we try to capture it? So it's that weekly meeting that keeps not only myself, but uh, in my analyst and, and my sideline person, as well as, as our producer who hosts our pre and halftime and postgame stuff. It helps keep us all on point so that we can all try to be better. What is your prep process like uh, we'll just do one sport. We'll do for football since that's uh, college basketball is over and football is coming up before we know it. What is your prep process starting the day after a game up until kickoff? Well, it kind of starts the day of a game for the previous week. And why I say that, Logan, is what I try to do is DVR the upcoming opponent if they are on TV someplace that I can DVR it. So let's say... For example, Ohio State plays Indiana this year in their season opening game. But in week two, they play Oklahoma. If Oklahoma, for their first week game, is on TV, where I can DVR it, then I do that. So that after that present Saturday is done, then I can start the next week getting ready for the next opponent. Then it involves um, you know, getting game notes, usually each team, and in Ohio State's case, they have a Monday press briefing uh, with Coach Meyer. Uh, the game notes for Ohio State are made available. Uh, usually, this, the opponents, either on Monday or the next day, will have their game notes available. So that allows you to put together your game chart with your own two deep. And every announcer does their own game chart differently. Uh, mine involves using mailing labels that, that I type out on a computer program. <clears throat> and then I put on a, a legal-sized manila envelope where I'll have Ohio State's offense on one side, the opponent's defense below it. Flip the, flip the folder over, and, and it's vice versa. And what I do, and that's most of the work during the week, is as well as while doing my on-air responsibilities for my radio station, work on putting that game chart together, um, you know, putting stats, putting their stats from the, the season for the previous game. If the two teams had played the previous year, uh, for, let's say, running backs or receivers, putting down how many catches or how many runs they had had against Ohio State, uh, putting on team statistics on a side, going through the players' bios and, and trying to put together a cheat sheet with some biographical information also on the game chart that if time and, and situation calls for it, you have it at your disposal. And it involves keeping that game chart with me during my work day when I'm at work, at night, when I'm watching the DVR of the, the opponent, having my game chart with me so that I can watch them to get familiar with ball carriers and receivers and linebackers and defensive backs who are usually the fastest ones to the ball on defense. 
I'll keep a uh, a little index card in my car, in my sun visor, for the opposing team that will have names and numbers of the players who will handle the ball a lot. That will be their key players to try and commit some of them to memory. Um, so that's that's what a lot of the prep during the course of the week involves. Do you have any tips for memorizing stuff? Not specifically, no. Um, what helps is certainly with conference teams. When you see players, you know, for one, two, three, four years. But no, not necessarily. Uh, the only thing that I can point people to is kind of be familiar where you put them on your chart. So, you know, as you try to get familiar with a name and a number, and then you see that player on the field, and if the name doesn't come to you right away, you have kind of an idea of where that number is on your game chart. Uh, the, the comparison, Logan, that I make is it's like getting ready for a test in school and having your notes, but being able to take your notes to the test with you and knowing where the important information is. So, But as far as memorizing, no, not really. Um, it really isn't. What gets tricky sometimes, and especially in the college game now with duplicate numbers, uh, you know, that's a, a new issue that a lot of us at the collegiate level have had to deal with. But uh, no, not any specific trip. But also, you don't have to memorize everybody. Uh, but you kind of have to know, even if it's a number and you don't know the name right off the top of your head, you have an idea where that number is on your chart. Who are some of your favorite broadcasters to listen to when Ohio State has a bye week? Well, I, I'm biased because some of the other announcers in the Big Ten that I've become very good friends with are the people that if I'm where I can get on a, uh, get in a car with a satellite radio and listen to. Uh, Matt LaPay from Wisconsin, Gary Dolphin from Iowa, Don Fisher of Indiana, Mike Grimm from Minnesota. Uh, Steve Jones from Penn State, Dave Ennett from Northwestern. Those are guys that uh, that I've become friends with, and, and I'm biased from that standpoint. Uh, Greg Sharp in Nebraska. So I, I really enjoyed listening to them. Uh, as far as some of the other people, uh, Bob Rondo at Washington, who just recently announced that he's going to retire. Uh, and satellite radio allows us the, the great opportunity to be able to hear some of those people. Uh, I've had times, oftentimes during my bye week, in the last couple of years, I've... Uh, managed to make long weekends and go to Vermont. There's a couple of particular getaway places that uh, my significant other and I enjoy going to in Vermont, and that's allowed me an opportunity to listen to Matt Park do football for Syracuse. They've enjoyed that. Gene Deckerhoff, who does Florida State's games, is someone I've known all the way back to the late 1980s. So those are some of the team announcers that I really enjoy listening to. Uh, from a network level, uh, Brad Nestler certainly is a guy that I, that I love listening to do college football as well as basketball. Dave Pash is also someone that, that I really enjoy listening to. So those, those are some of the ones that come uh, top of mind. If a young or any broadcaster, for that matter, wanted to reach out to you with further questions, how would they do so? The best way to be able to reach out to me would be, uh, I do have a Twitter page, um, and it's at uh, Paul Keels, capital P, capital K. Uh, that would probably be the best way. Also, uh, my email through my radio station, it's uh, paul.keels at radiohio.com. Again, that's paul.keels at radiohio.com. And I'm always glad to try and, and provide insight because, you know, a long time ago, there were guys that were willing to, to help me and give me advice. And, uh, you know, one of the great phrases around Ohio State football that comes from Woody Hayes is paying forward. And certainly what he's talking about is 
charitable events and things like that, uh, much more important than what we're talking about, Logan. But uh, you always remember what other, you know, I'm sure this is true in other businesses. You always remember those people who are willing to take a little bit of time to, to help point you in the right direction. So, um, and, and I think I heard you talk about it on one of the podcasts you had that I was able to sample a little of. I'm not sure if it was Dave Sims or Ken Korak, but uh, everybody's task different. Uh, everybody gets there a different way sometimes. So just because you've heard somebody talk about one way they've gotten there, that's not necessarily the way that, that you've got to go. I was very fortunate. I didn't have to go live in a small town and, and work at a small station and you know do all of the on-air things, plus sweep the floor and park the general manager's car. Uh, but everybody's path's different, and that's the thing to remember. Well, we sure appreciate you giving us a little bit of your time here for the Say the Damn Score podcast. We're visiting with Paul Keels and the voice of Ohio State for both basketball and football. And, Paul, again, just I can't say thank you enough for coming on the show. My pleasure, Logan, and good luck to you. This has been the Say the Damn Score podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure to take a minute if you're listening on iTunes and give us a review and a rating. It really helps the podcast. Also, make sure to subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, or you can follow me on Twitter at Radio underscore Logan, or follow the podcast on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Say the Damn Score. Thanks for tuning in, and next time you're on the air, make sure to Say the Damn Score just a little bit more.